Chapter Seventeen of Sir Titus Salt, Baronet, His Life and Its Lessons. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Wayne Cook. Sir Titus Salt, Baronet, His Life and Its Lessons, by Robert Belgarni. Chapter Seventeen. In joys, in grief, in triumphs, in retreat, great always, without seeming to be great. Roscommon. Generous is brave, affection, kindness, the sweet offices of love and duty, were to him as needful as his daily bread. Rogers. In the last chapter, the reader has been made acquainted with Sir Titus Salt's private occupations at Crow Nest. But as building operations were always claiming his attention at Saltaire, let us see what improvements are going forward there. The town still continued to grow, though when each new addition was completed he would say, I've finished now. Yet soon afterwards some other local want was perceived, which he proceeded to supply. One of these was a recreation ground for the workpeople. We have already seen the provision made in various ways for their welfare, but open-air amusements being an essential condition of health, he, therefore, resolved to provide the salt-air park. It is situated on the north side of the air, and within five minutes' walk of the town. The area enclosed for the purpose contains fourteen acres, and the tastes of old and young have been thoughtfully considered in the plan of its arrangement. One half of the ground is beautifully laid out in walks and flower-beds, and separated from the other half by a broad gravel terrace, in the centre of which is a music pavilion for the band. The largest portion of the park is devoted to cricket, croquet, and archery. The river, as it approaches the park, has been widened, so that boating, bathing, and swimming may be enjoyed with safety. There is no charge for admission. No person is allowed to enter or remain there in the state of intoxication. No intoxicating drinks are to be consumed there. No profane or indecent language, gambling, or pitch and toss are allowed nor any meeting for the purpose of making religious or political demonstrations without special permission. The ceremony of formally declaring the park open took place on the 25th of July, 1871, in the presence of a large concourse of spectators. The works at Saltair were stopped a little earlier to give the workpeople an opportunity of being present at the ceremony. When the volunteers, with their brass band, had entered the park, the gates were thrown open to the public. Sir Titus, accompanied by several members of his family, occupying a place on the pavilion. Mr. Edward Salt, on behalf of his father, said that the park was bequeathed to them and their successors, and it was hoped they would long enjoy it for the purposes of recreation and amusement. He called their attention to the regulations of the park, and hoped that each would see it to be their duty to observe them. Sir Titus said that he was very sorry 
that lady salt was unable to be present to declare the park open but her eldest daughter would do it in her stead miss salt then declared the park duly open to the public affaire de joie was then fired by the volunteers amid loud and prolonged cheers the bells in the church rung out a merry peal and the band struck up the national anthem sir titus and the party then walked round the park and the memorable proceedings ended parentheses see saltaire and its founder page sixty eight but while sir titus was thus manifesting his warm attachment to the workpeople and his solicitude for their welfare they on the other hand sought opportunity to express their gratitude to him by the presentation of his portrait that portrait painted by j p knight r a now hangs in the institute and represents him standing in an easy attitude by the side of a table on which he is leaning with his left hand at the foot of the frame there is the following inscription presented to sir titus salt baronet of crownest by two thousand two hundred ninety five subscribers eighteen seventy one the presentation took place in the large hall of the institute in the presence of sir titus and lady salt with the other members of the family the following address was read on the occasion to sir titus salt baronet of crownest and saltaire on presenting him with his portrait dear sir titus it gives unfeigned pleasure to your employees and other inhabitants of saltaire and neighbourhood to be able to give effect to their long-cherished purpose to present you with a full-length portrait of yourself the subscribers however are deeply sensible that no such testimonial is necessary to perpetuate your memory or enhance your fame your public spirit commercial enterprise deeds of charity and great christian benevolence have already erected to your honour in many parts monuments more lasting than marble tablets or granite pillars and the noble institutions by which we are here surrounded the splendid club and institute that will be graced by this portrait the almshouses and infirmary the baths and schools the comfortable homes the beautiful church the park will all proclaim to posterity in language which cannot be mistaken the true greatness and philanthropy of the noble founder of saltaire but while all this is true we feel persuaded that this testimonial will occupy a place peculiarly its own for when you sir titus shall have passed away a time we trust far in the distance this portrait will present to succeeding generations and keep ever before them in so far as art can do so the appearance of him whom so many delighted to honour both as master and friend we beg your acceptance sir titus of this testimonial as an expression of the esteem and regard of the subscribers the spirit in which the proposal was first made the liberal response it has received and the thoroughness with which it has been carried out cannot fail to be gratifying to your feelings in the volume which accompanies this address you will find the names of no less than twenty two hundred ninety six subscribers and it is their earnest desire and prayer 
that you may be long spared to your family and the world, and that when you are gathered to your fathers, this likeness may represent your features to generations yet unborn, and point to many lessons which may be learned from your interesting history. Signed on behalf of the subscribers. Saltair, August 16, 1871. The screen was then drawn from the picture amid the cheers of the assembly. Sir Titus, who was very much affected, said, My dear friends, you need not expect any speech from me. I shall ever remember this day as the greatest of my life. This testimonial of your friendship and kindness I accept with the greatest gratitude, I assure you and I hope it will find a place here to be viewed for generations yet to come as an emblem of your kindness. I may now congratulate you and myself on the completion of Salt Air. I have been twenty years at work, and now it is complete, and I hope it will be a satisfaction and a joy, and will minister to the happiness of all my people residing here if i was eloquent or able to make a long speech i should try to do so but my feelings would not allow me i thank you most cordially a pleasing testimonial was also presented by the children of salt air consisting of two silver-plated breakfast dishes the reason for the selection of these articles was that they might be a memento daily before his eyes the wishes of the subscribers were complied with, for their kind present has ever since been in daily use. Among many visitors attracted to salt air at this period from various parts of the world, two or three may be specially mentioned. The first was Lord Palmerston, when Premier, who included salt air in his visit to Bradford, when the foundation stone of the new exchange was laid. Sir Titus received his lordship and conducted him to the church, the schools, and the various departments of the mill, making use of the hoist as a means of transit from one story to another. On his arriving at the center of the weaving shed, the engines were stopped, and about two thousand of the hands had thus an opportunity of seeing him. After luncheon in the private dining-room, his lordship left in the Scotch Express, which had been detained for him. The second illustrious visitors were the Burmese ambassadors, who retired in their eastern official dress, and were conducted over the town and works by Mr. Titus Salt and Mr. Charles Steed. The third were the Japanese ambassadors, accompanied by a numerous suite. All these foreign visitors had been attracted to Salt Air by the fame of it that had gone forth, but such was their wonder at the vastness of the establishment and the completeness of the arrangements, that it was evident that the half had not been told them. The hospitality shewn to these oriental guests was marked by the thoughtful arrangements of the firm. The dining-room was decorated for the occasion with a variety of plants, indigenous to the native country of the visitors, and instead of wine, to which they are unaccustomed, they were regaled with the choicest fruits. One of the metropolitan institutions, in which Sir Titus took much interest, was the Royal Albert Hall, Kensington. Towards its erection he very largely contributed, and he also purchased one of the largest and best boxes at the cost of one thousand pounds. 
sir titus was a frequent visitor to the hall when any special concert was given not that he himself had much taste for music but the brilliancy of the scene delighted him and his own pleasure was much enhanced when he had friends around him to share it seldom was his box unoccupied for when unable to be present himself it was generously placed at the disposal of others after the dignity of baronet was conferred upon him he was presented at court and went in in the attire of a deputy lieutenant but after the ceremony his court address and sword were never assumed again when in london he stayed at thomas's hotel where on one occasion he had a severe attack of illness happening to be in town we visited him and spent some time with him alone on rising to leave he said let us have prayer before you go on sundays he generally attended westminster chapel the rev samuel martins occasionally he went to surrey chapel of which the rev newman hall was then the minister and whose noble efforts in the erection of christ church received his liberal support once he worshipped at the metropolitan tabernacle and was much impressed with a sermon by the rev c h spurgeon but as his hearing had become impaired it was a strain to listen to a discourse throughout yet he eagerly watched the countenance of the preacher with manifest sympathy during his autumnal visits to scarborough he was seldom absent from the services of south cliff church both on weekdays and sundays once only was he late and then from no fault of his own he joined heartily in the singing and his attitude was ever that of profound reverence once a prayer meeting was held at the close of an evening service at which he was unable to remain on proceeding to his hotel afterwards we found him with his bible open before him and as he closed it when we entered he said i could not remain at the prayer meeting but i have remembered you here from frequent attacks of gout his walking powers became considerably impaired so that a drive or a stroll on the esplanade was as much as his strength would allow but there were many instances in his daily life there which are interesting to recall and which illustrate his character and disposition it was a diversion to him to visit the fish market and there purchase the necessary supplies for the table on one occasion he was accosted by a fishwoman and asked to buy a fine cod but having forgotten his spectacles he made this excuse for declining to purchase it the woman not willing to lose a good customer offered to lend her own which offer was readily accepted and a bargain followed but he forgot to return the borrowed spectacles and quietly walked away imagine the sequel the fishwoman hurrying after him and claiming her property which she was unconsciously carrying off on his nose another of his characteristics by the seaside was the interest he took in the children a certain confectioner's shop in the town was frequently visited and such good things as would please the young people were purchased in considerable quantities this he would not only send to those he knew but even the children of strangers had a share in his kindness he always remembered the fifth of november and regularly sent a donation to certain boys in whose pyrotechnic demonstrations he was particularly interested but perhaps his chief enjoyment in scarborough 
was the quiet evening spent with his family and a few intimate friends around him then he would freely join in conversation or take part in any social games that were introduced as the time for evening prayer approached the present writer was generally expected and when the usual hour arrived pastime was suspended or terminated for the evening and all gathered round the family altar in the autumn of eighteen seventy two an event occurred that affected not only his heart but still more so the heart of his eldest daughter who became engaged to henry wright esq j p of london miss salt had been for several years brought into closest intercourse with her father not only as his confidential secretary but by her loving ministrations in his times of sickness so that the prospect of losing her presence and valuable help seemed like parting with his right hand we question whether on any other occasion his character stands out more nobly than it did in this when he had satisfied himself that her suitor was in all respects worthy of the affections of his daughter he cordially welcomed him into the family and readily sacrificed all personal considerations that their happiness might be promoted when the time of their marriage approached he took a journey to london to visit her future home and to see that nothing was wanting for her comfort after an inspection of the interior arrangements he entered the dining-room to rest at that moment a favoured canary struck up a song as if in the secret of the visit turning towards the songster he playfully said well you seem to be saying what do you think of it all the marriage which was celebrated shortly after was the answer to the imaginary question the happy event took place at lightcliffe congregational church on the second of april eighteen seventy three when the rev thomas viney and the rev j thompson performed the ceremony an incident occurred in connection with it which revealed the heart of the father on an occasion so trying to himself to the question who giveth this woman sir titus replied i do with all my heart so the days of rejoicing and parting came and she who had been her father's helper went forth leaning on the arm of a husband to whom she was united not only by the bond of marriage but by another that even death cannot sever henceforth the visit to london by sir titus was invested with an interest it had not possessed before instead of sojourning at thomas's hotel there was a home at kensington to which two hearts were ever glad to bid him welcome and of whose hospitality he once facetiously remarked i prefer henry's hotel to any other under the guidance of his son-in-law he became acquainted with various localities of interest in the metropolis unknown to him before and of religious and benevolent institutions with whose names he had long been familiar and which had often been the recipients of his generous help among these was the memorial hall farringdon street in which he was much interested one sunday morning when unable to attend public worship he spent the time in reading the london city mission magazine which mrs wright had placed on the table the nature of the work carried on among the poor of the metropolis as therein described deeply affected him in the course of the day he said to mr wright holding up the magazine do you know anything about this work 
I should like to send a cheque for a hundred pounds to it to morrow, if you will take it for me." A similar incident took place in the Paris Exhibition of 1867, where Mr. Hawke had a stand for the distribution of the scriptures in various languages. Sir Titus was much interested in witnessing the eagerness of foreigners to possess a portion of God's word. He went up to the proprietor and said, I am just going to the hotel to pay my bill, and when it is settled I should like to give whatever money I have left over to this good work. He soon returned and handed fifty pounds to Mr. Hawk, although only a few months previously he had forwarded one hundred pounds for the same object. Perhaps no religious work in his own neighborhood enlisted his sympathies more than the Bradford Town Mission and the Bible Women. The latter movement was originated seventeen years ago by Miss Helen Taylor, well known for her benevolent exertions on behalf of the poor. But her good work seemed, at one time, paralyzed for want of funds. Happening to meet Sir Titus, she told him of her dilemma. But as he had never heard of Bible women before, he begged her to come to his house and give him more information about them. As the best method of showing the nature of the work, she read to him a few extracts from the journal of one of the Bible women known as Ruth. As he listened, tears were in his eyes, and at the close he said to Miss Taylor, That's a good work. Go on. I'll help you. And he was as good as his word, for not only did he pay all the expenses of the first year's domestic mission, but from first to last he manifested in various ways a peculiar interest in this simple, humble agency. He believed in the power of Christian sympathy, and rejoiced to hear from year to year of the increase of the messengers of mercy to the homes of sadness and sorrow. Once every year the Bible women were most heartily welcomed to Cronest and most hospitably entertained at his table, and those who have been present will never forget his thoughtful kindness on these occasions making every arrangement for their enjoyment, and doing everything in his power to make their visit a happy and refreshing one. He always sent his carriage to the station to meet them, and on their arrival they were as warmly welcomed by him and family as if they had been the most distinguished visitors. He has frequently entertained at his table noble guests, but never did he look happier than when surrounded by his ten humble friends. When the day's pleasure was over, and his carriage was waiting at the door to take them to the station, he shook hands with each, giving them a large bouquet of flowers to cheer them in their own homes. Ruth was his special Bible woman. She was supported entirely by him, and greatly valued for her faithful service. Almost the last money given by him was sent to her. Having heard that she had overworked herself, and gone to the seaside for rest and change of air, he sent her a five-pound note to defray the expenses of her journey. There are many instances of his attachment to Christian ministers and his sympathy with them in their work. A fund having been opened for aged ministers, called the Pastor's Retiring Fund, he forwarded to the treasurer the sum of eighteen hundred pounds. It may truly be said that as the close of life drew nearer, he seemed more desirous to compress into it a greater amount of work for God and man. For he well knew that, 
the night cometh when no man can work. Hence his liberality still more abounded as being the only way left by which he could work. He was determined that what property he had at his disposal should not be bequeathed, but given, not taken after death from his cold grasp, but that his own heart and hand, stirred with the warmth of life and love, should present it while living. One of his latest benefactions was the promise of eleven thousand pounds to provide two scholarships for boys of one hundred twenty pounds each at the Bradford Grammar School, and two of one hundred pounds each available for girls. Having long held the opinion that the support of religion should be entirely voluntary, that the patronage and control of the state militated against its spiritual power, that for any particular church to be established by law was equivalent to a monopoly which was unjust in itself and inimical to religious liberty, that the appointment of bishops by a political minister and their sitting in Parliament were foreign to the genius of Christianity. He was therefore heartily in favor of every legitimate means to bring the union between church and state to an end. He had helped in his day to abolish monopoly in trade. He had lived to see a mighty impulse given to the commercial life of the country when trade was left to itself, and he confidently believed that were the Church of England also free, it would give new impulse to her usefulness and to the spiritual life of the nation. It was, therefore, not merely on religious grounds, but as a man of business, that he supported the Liberation Society and latterly gave to it the sum of five thousand pounds. We have had ample evidence of his sympathy with seafaring men. Another instance may be mentioned. Hearing of disastrous shipwrecks on the east coast, he offered a lifeboat, but as each station was at that time supplied, it was sent to Stornoway, where it is still in use and known as the Saltair Lifeboat. During the last few years of his life, he was unable from physical infirmities to take that prominent part in local politics to which he had been accustomed, yet his attachment to his former principles never wavered. The Liberal Party ever regarded him as a tower of strength when those principles had to be vindicated. In 1869, a vacancy occurred in the representation of the borough by the decision of Baron Martin, touching one of the recently elected members. The election that ensued found Sir Titus at his post. He was chairman of Mr. Mayle's committee, and the triumphant return of that gentleman to Parliament was to him a matter of great satisfaction from the similarity of their views on ecclesiastical questions. At the general election in 1874, his physical strength was so much impaired that all public excitement had to be avoided, but he watched the issue of it with intense interest. His old political friend, Mr. Forster, seemed to him by his great education bill to be putting fresh facilities into the hands of the state church clergy for controlling popular education. This opinion was shared by a large portion of the Liberal Party in Bradford and throughout the country generally, and produced a spirit of antagonism among political friends who had hitherto acted in concert. It also evoked strenuous opposition to the return of Mr. Forster and Mr. Ripley, 
whose views on this question were considered identical. Notwithstanding the opposition, both these gentlemen were successful. We refer to these incidents as illustrative of the character of Sir Titus. Whatever were his principles and politics or religion, he stood up for them at any personal sacrifice. But when the strife was over, he was too generous to cherish other than feelings of respect for those who contentiously differed from him. His large subscriptions and donations to public charities placed in his hands a considerable amount of patronage in the way of voting. At the election of applicants for admission into the Hull Orphanage or the Lancaster Idiot Asylum, his interest in any particular case generally secured its election. In view of the occasion, he was frequently inundated with letters, but the applications that received his sympathy and help were the most deserving, whom he selected after careful deliberation. As a liberal subscriber to the British Workman, he received 400 copies monthly of that publication which were sent to the Bradford Town Mission for distribution. From the Tract Society, he received a large monthly supply of tracts, which willing hands circulated for him. As for books and pamphlets, the variety and number which he gave away were remarkable. For when he invested in literature, it was not on the scale of ordinary purchasers, but with a liberality that testified his gratitude to the authors and his desire to benefit others by the promulgation of their opinions. Thus the evening of his life was spent in doing good, and by his deeds we know his life. He liveth long, who liveth well, all other life is thrown away. He liveth longest, who can tell of true deeds truly done each day. End of chapter 17